Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Green Jobs champion Van Jones leaves his White House post amid attacks from the right wing. Some in Congress say President Obama made a mistake in letting Jones go. I was disappointed that the White House caved in to the kind of ferocious attack that took place against Van Jones. In fact, I think uh, getting rid of Van Jones only whets their appetite, and certainly uh, more will come. And as climate negotiators try to find ways to save the world's tropical rainforests, we travel to Brazil to see the problem firsthand. When we first moved here, when the, to the west is all forest, we'd sit here in the evenings, my wife and I, maybe waves and waves of parrots and macaws flying over. Today's maybe five, ten. Yeah, there's no more forest left. It tore it all down. The fight to conserve the Amazon and its carbon. That and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Not long after President Barack Obama took office, he excited environmental activists by making Van Jones a White House special advisor on green jobs. An African-American trained as a lawyer at Yale, Mr. Jones built an agency in the Oakland, California area that took off with a campaign for green jobs. He's a best-selling author and, as Living on Earth listeners heard last year, an electrifying speaker. The people who said we could have a financial strategy based on borrow and spend and bubble and bailout, they've had their turn. They've been totally discredited. It's our turn now. Green jobs now! Green jobs now! But as soon as Van Jones was on the job, he was under attack from conservative commentators like Fox News host Glenn Beck. Van Jones... Van Jones, he's our green jobs czar. Well, what does that tell you? It says that the president has an agenda that is radical, revolutionary, and in some cases, Marxist. The pundits dug into his past and found Mr. Jones once used rude anatomical slang to describe some Republicans. More damaging, he long ago signed a petition involving the families of victims of 9-11. Among other things, it claimed the Bush White House had some prior knowledge of the attacks. Van Jones says he never saw that petition's full text and does not agree with it. But a White House spokesman offered little support, and Van Jones resigned over Labor Day weekend. The administration's critics had a victory, and its environmental supporters had questions about why Van Jones was let go and what it meant for the green agenda. Independent Vermont Senator and Green Job Subcommittee Chair Bernie Sanders says the White House should have fought back. I was disappointed uh, that the White House caved in quite the way they did uh, to the kind of ferocious attack that took place against Van Jones uh, from the right-wing echo chamber from Fox and and, uh, and perhaps some other right-wing commentators. I I would have preferred that the White House remained firm uh, in supporting uh, Mr. Jones because, in fact, I think uh, getting rid of Van Jones only whets their appetite, and and certainly uh, more will come. The White House says Mr. Jones's decision to resign was his own. We asked Joe Rome for a little analysis. Rome served as an assistant secretary of energy in the Clinton years and now blogs on clean energy for the Democratic think tank Center for American Progress. 
Rome says Van Jones fell victim to a larger and increasingly ugly political fight over the country's energy future. The person who claimed credit on Fox News for taking him down, who is this uh, Phil Kirpin from the Americans for Prosperity, you know, was very blunt that they are against the clean energy jobs message. Uh, And, you know, he said we need to put not just him, but the whole corrupt green jobs concept outside the bounds of the political mainstream. The clean energy jobs message has been a centerpiece of this administration, and I think the right wing saw Van Jones as the embodiment of that message, and and that was a, a central reason why they went after him. Americans for Prosperity, what do we know about that organization? Uh, Well, we know that it is a front group for billionaire polluters. I think it's Coke Industries uh, that has backed them. They uh, used to be a pro-tobacco industry group that worked to defeat things like smoke-free workplace. And now they are pushing very hard to kill the clean energy and jobs and climate bill that's going to be discussed in the Senate this fall. What do you think of how the White House handled this? I wish that the progressive community, including me, had recognized earlier it is very hard to know whether to take a guy like Glenn Beck seriously. I mean, he called President Obama a racist. During the clean energy bill debate in the House, he and this guy from Americans for Prosperity took out a watermelon. They said it was a watermelon bill because it's green on the outside and red on the inside. And so they took out a watermelon and started eating it. The choice of a watermelon as metaphor here is, um, well, there's another possible connotation there, isn't there? It certainly has a connotation given that the attacks were on uh, African-American Van Jones and on President Obama. So I agree with you. It, It has certain undertones. And it is absurd to say that advocating green jobs is somehow socialist. What does this incident tell us about the sort of debate we can expect when the Senate does get around to turning its attention to energy and climate change? The polluting industries, you know, uh, like big oil, uh, who have been backing groups like Americans for Prosperity, they are opposed to clean energy and they want to keep us addicted to uh, dirty energy. So they have, you know, tens of millions of dollars to throw at this and make this a very coarse debate. They're going to go after every single clean energy advocate and uh, they're going to spread disinformation at town hall meetings and through mailings and phone calls. So this is going to be a very tough battle. Remember, we haven't passed clean air legislation in two decades, and we've never passed a climate bill, and we've never passed a clean energy bill uh, like the one that's being considered. So, yes, this is going to be an epic battle. The forces of status quo make a lot of money from the status quo, and they are going to use it to block change. Joe Rome blogs at climateprogress.org. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Even as Van Jones was being drummed out of the White House climate crew, coal company Massey Energy sponsored a million-dollar Labor Day party and rally in West Virginia. The mission? To boost opposition to the Waxman-Markey climate bill that has passed the House and awaits Senate action. Massey CEO Don Blankenship. Do you want a government that wants to shut down our coal mines? Do you want a government that wants to increase your power bill? Do you want a government that gives your tax money to your overseas competitors? Do you want a government that's run by people that think they can change the temperature of the earth when they can't balance their budget? 
Well, there were plenty of coal miners in the crowd, but even though it was Labor Day, labor leaders didn't speak. Massey is a non-union company, and the United Mine Workers of America has supported climate legislation in the past. But the union has reservations about the Waxman-Markey bill, especially its timetable to get so-called clean coal technology online. Cecil Roberts is president of the United Mine Workers, and he's on the line. Hello. Hi, how are you today, Steve? So uh, I'm wondering, how long did you work as a miner? Six years. Underground? Yes. What was that like? Well, I, I, quite frankly, once uh, I got used to it, which took about a, two months, it was uh, fine. Just like going to work any other place. And quite proud to have been a coal miner then and quite proud to be a former coal miner now. And your dad was a coal miner? Father was a coal miner. Both grandfathers were coal miners and both were killed in the coal mines. Never met either one of them. They were both killed before I was born. Now, we're talking on an electronic hookup that I'm just going to bet half of these electrons are being pushed around by the power of coal. But now, of course, there are these questions about the use of coal and climate change and all that. And uh, I called you up to find out how the United Mine Workers feels about the climate bill that's right now in front of the Congress. It's known as Waxman-Markey. What's your position on this? Well, we try to express the feelings of our members, and I can tell you that... uh, greatest fear is that if there's a reduction in in the amount of carbon that's released into the atmosphere, that means less coal being burned uh, in the United States, which would mean less coal being transported, less coal being mined, uh, fewer coal miners, uh, fewer rail workers, fewer truck drivers. And that's the fear, that they're not going to have a job, or at least not have a job that uh, provides the wages and benefits that they currently enjoy. Let me just be, get one thing clear here. The United Mine Workers and coal miners uh, that you represent do feel that there is a serious problem with climate change, that the science is real and this is something we've got to deal with. Do I have that right? Well, that would be correct. The union has never taken a position arguing against the science of climate change We've engaged in the debate as to how to deal with it. So we've spent lots and lots of time and resources of coal miners uh, trying to deal with this issue in order to protect the jobs of the coal miners and, quite frankly, the jobs of many people, particularly in some of the hardest and most difficult economic areas of the country. What needs to be in Waxman-Markey for your union to get behind it? I think probably the most important thing to say about this bill as it moves into the debate over on the Senate side is can we get to these types of reductions of 17 percent by 2020 and also develop this technology in such a short period of time and also deploy that technology onto the coal-fired facilities that are in, in existence now and would be constructed into the future. We're very much concerned that we may not have enough time to do both. Let me ask you this, uh, Cecil Roberts. If the timetable for the technology that would allow the burning of coal to continue while not endangering the plant, if that doesn't come forward, would it not be in the best interest of America to indemnify those workers who aren't able to continue uh, working because this is really a special case? Uh, Would you see that? I think what's problematic here, I believe, is that 
we're talking about miners who are earning a very good wage and benefit for their families currently. They have health care. They have pensions. We have 100,000 retirees. Then there's about a 4 to 1 to 6 to 1 ratio of support jobs that go with every mining job, depending on what part of the country you're in. This would be an enormous cost, obviously, if, if the government said, well, we owe these people something. And I certainly agree that the country owes a great debt to coal miners. I think it would be difficult to convince Congress, the government, to do this. At this point, the U.S. proposed legislation would impose restrictions on goods produced in a more carbon-intensive environment of developing countries. I believe the focus is China. How do you feel about that legislation? Well, I think that, that there should be restrictions. And I would point out one aspect of this uh, climate change debate that does concern us. China has to do nothing here. They're building a coal-fired power plant every week, by the way, and it's almost the same in India, and they have no plans to stop that. And they start making all the products that we make here. The American workers have a right to ask those questions and be concerned about them. Cecil Roberts, the president of the United Mine Workers of America, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Well, thank you for having us. Coming up, how names like Whippoorwill and Chickadee illuminate some universal truths. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. In recent years, many dairy farmers around the country have started capturing the gases from their cow manure and converting them into energy. Using this renewable resource saves money and copes with a problem, a win-win solution. But in the Central Valley of California, which has some of the worst air quality in the nation... These new methane digesters are sparking controversy. That's because they generate some pollution themselves. Amy Coombs has our story. At Fiscalini Farms outside Modesto, California, agricultural engineer Nettie Drake is giving a tour around a state-of-the-art open-air barn. It has plenty of room for 1,700 dairy cows to eat, drink, and produce the stuff that green power is made of. Drake says one person's cow waste is another's commodity. Instead of calling it waste, uh, because of the negative connotation of that, it's actually, we call it nutrient, because it creates a very valuable product, and that would be the electricity and the heat that we use to as, as a renewable energy source. Fiscalini just built a methane digester to convert cow manure into electricity. The farm hopes to make some $100,000 a month by selling extra electricity back to the grid. The first step is collecting the cow nutrient. The funny thing is about the cows is that we've been able to train them to defecate in an area where they eat, and it allows us to use water to collect the waste. A stream of water pushes the manure into an 8,000-gallon tub. There, naturally occurring bacteria consume the waste and release methane. That methane, when burned in a generator, would make enough power to run the entire farm. 
plus 600 homes. But Drake points to the bright orange Caterpillar engine, sitting silent. This is our big boy, and unfortunately, we cannot turn it on because they won't let us. San Joaquin Valley air officials have blocked the farm from turning on their manure digester until they install air pollution equipment. Air official Dave Warner says digesters like this one produce nitrogen oxide, or NOx, for short. Uh, Nitrogen oxide is what's known as a precursor to a couple of very important pollutants. Fine particulate matter, which when you breathe in, gets into your lungs and even into your bloodstream. It's also a precursor to ozone pollution. Ozone pollution causes all kinds of respiratory problems, um, from asthma to emphysema. NOx is made during combustion. Just like your car needs oxygen from the air to ignite spark plugs, so do dairy generators. The problem is the air also contains nitrogen, and after combustion, this leaves behind nitrogen oxides. Warner and his colleagues have been trying to reduce NOx by 8 tons per day just to meet federal health standards. He says he'll be darned if he'll let these dairy machines set that effort back. I've called up the list of dairies in the central region of our San Joaquin Valley, and you can see it's an extensive list. If every dairy that had the potential of installing this technology did so, they would create, according to our calculations, about five tons per day increase in nitrogen oxide emissions, virtually wiping out the eight tons per day reduction. It's a sticky issue. Dairy generators emit NOx, but they also reduce greenhouse gases. They prevent the greenhouse gas methane from being released. Methane is 20 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Plus, since digesters make renewable electricity, they reduce the need for dirty power, like that from coal. But Werner says climate change is out of his jurisdiction. The governing board of the Air District has made it very clear that when these trade-offs between greenhouse gas emissions reductions and nitrogen oxide increases are there in front of us, we're going to, going to choose on the side of protecting the health of the people of the, of the San Joaquin Valley. So as of last January, most dairies had to add an extra device to their manure digesters to capture NOx. At another nearby dairy, the Gallo Dairy, manager Carl Morris says that's been difficult. He's replacing his eighth of these new pollution control devices. This is one of the catalytic converters that burned up. It's very damaged on this end. It's kind of a honeycomb look and ashy and everything. Part of the reason was very thick. We got another catalytic converter trying a different type that's thinner, but it didn't fit well. This farm had been making electricity from methane for five years. But ever since they installed the new pollution controls, their digester has been down. The farm's manure piles up in a giant seven-acre pond. Carl Morris says you can actually walk on the pond because it's covered by a thick black plastic tarp strong enough to hold our weight. You can feel the methane bubbles pushing up underneath the plastic. Once you get up here, you're actually walking on the gas. There's so much gas in this area that it's supporting your weight. We treat that gas and use it to power our uh, generators, which produce 700 kilowatts of electricity. Or that's what they did before they had to shut the machine down. Three other dairies in the area have shut down their digesters, too, because they can't afford to buy and fix the pollution controls. Permit requirements are delaying at least six others. Back at the Fiscalini farms, you can feel the tension. The owners thought they'd be earning money from their clean electricity months ago. 
we have talked often about if we had known what we were getting into doing this project, we would have never done it. And that's sad. The farm had to spend $100,000 for the device. That's after $3 million they paid for the manure generator. The regulatory agencies that are requiring this don't even know if this technology is going to work. It has not even been tested, yet we were forced to spend the money to put it in. San Joaquin Air officials admit that all the kinks haven't been worked out in adapting the pollution controls to dairies. The digesters were designed for landfills and sewage treatment plants. But air official Dave Warner says the point is the valley cannot afford any increases in NOx. One out of five children here takes an inhaler to school. We're not going after dairies in any way. We're applying a very stringent rule to dairies, just as we apply it to all other sources of air pollution in the San Joaquin Valley. This may be one of the first conflicts in the country where those reducing greenhouse gases have run into trouble over traditional pollutants. Fortunately, manure power technology is expected to get cleaner over the next few years. For now, the dairies say they'll just have to keep tinkering. For Living on Earth, this is Amy Coombs in Modesto, California. Biologist and New York Times science writer Carol Kasich-Yoon's new book, Naming Nature, is a history of taxonomy. Now, the practice of putting Latin names to critters and plants might not sound like a setting for conflict and drama, but that's just what she found. As her subtitle tells us, there's a clash between instinct and science. Ms. Yoon discovered that as the science of taxonomy ordered things according to evolutionary ties, it alienated those of us who relate to the natural world through instinct. Most of us rely on our senses to make sense of the living world. It's a powerfully human and unifying impulse Ms. Yoon names the Umwelt. So this basic way that humans have of seeing and perceiving the world is what creates the universals that are seen across all different people and across time in how people order and name life. It's all, it all comes down to having the same basic sensory perception of life out there. Now, you have this great example of how some names for animals seem to make sense regardless of the language. And I'd like you to walk us through this short quiz here. Now, this has to do with uh, a Peruvian tribe and their names for different fish or birds. And we're supposed to guess which one sounds like a bird and which one sounds like it's a fish. Go ahead. Okay, so the first pair, the first name is Chunchuikit, and the second name is Mauts. Okay. Okay, the second pair is, the first name is Chichikia, and the second one is Katan. Okay, and pair number three? Teris, and the second one is Takaikit. Aha, okay. Now, I have read your book, so I've already done this, but I remembered when I originally (laughs) read this, these these were my guesses, I thought the, uh, and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation here, then the Chunchuikit? sounded like a bird Mm -hmm. because it kind of reminded me of chickadee, for example. And uh, same with the next one, chichikia, I thought sounded like, 
I honestly can't remember how I guessed on the, on the third one, so I can't really oh, say. Oh, I bet you were right. I bet you guessed Takayikit. Okay, so the right answers are... <laughs> Chunchuikit, Chichikia, and Takayikit. So, so I did pretty um, well. probably what... Yes, you did very well. And, and, and everyone does pretty well at this. That's, that's the deal, right? Everyone does pretty well at this. That's what's so interesting and so bizarre about it, really, over and over again, in language after language and people after people, animal sounds are very often used as the actual name for the organism. So you would say this is the umwelt coming through here? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's part of what, just from having a human brain and body and, and sensory perception of the world that we have, that when we hear bird sounds, it just makes sense to us to say, oh, you know, that's that chickadee, that chickadee, chickadee, dee, dee. It's so obvious, and yet it's kind of profound that that's what's going on. That's exactly it. It's either, depending on how you look at it, it's ridiculously obvious and not interesting or incredibly profound and very interesting, which is obviously how I feel about it. And it's this whole idea of actually being able to see how you see, of seeing your frame of reference and stepping back and realizing that what's around you and how you perceive the living world and how you name it, how you see Basically, what is out there is not just a matter of, of you taking in sensory data. It's about this very human perception, a very human lens that you're looking through that shows you what the living world is. It's the human view of the living world. You also tell the story of these poor people who, for whatever reason, have lost the ability to name the things that they see in nature. Tell me about them. There have been people who have this trauma to the brain, and then afterwards, they can order and name non-living things, so they can tell you what a flashlight is, or a table, or a chair, but they are unable to order and name living things, specifically and only living things. It's evidence that there's actually a physical spot in the brain that may be devoted to the ordering and naming of living things. So while uh, neurologists were finding this out and anthropologists were finding out these interesting similarities about how uh, folk taxonomies work, what was going on with uh, the science of taxonomy? Well, around the same time, around the 80s, there was a revolution going on in taxonomy. A man named Willy Hennig had figured out a way to order and name living things that was based much more on evolutionary relatedness than had ever been done before. And his followers were called cladists. This group of taxonomists was going around saying, this is a whole new way to order and name the living world. And the problem was that once cladists started going through all of the organisms that people have long studied and thought about, they started discarding a lot of things that people didn't want to see discarded. And one of the groups that they threw out was the fish. See, this makes no sense. Why, why are there no fish in, as a group in taxonomy? Well, I can tell you why it bothers you. The reason it bothers you is because your Umwelt is telling you, I know there are fish. I have seen fish. I've looked in the water. I've looked on my dinner plate. I know there are fish. But in fact, the things that we call fish, if you look at them on an evolutionary tree of life, they're not a single cohesive group. So help me understand, why did fish have to go away? Maybe the easiest way to understand it is with the example that Cladus themselves used when they were going around trying to show everyone why fish couldn't be a real group. So if you try to figure out what, say, the evolutionary tree is of three organisms, so a salmon, a lungfish, and a cow, 
it seems pretty obvious at first. If you look at a salmon, it's a fish. Everybody knows what it looks like. It has scales. It it lays fishy eggs. It swims around in the water. Lungfish, same. And then there's a cow, which everybody knows what it is. One of these things um, is if, not like the other. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so you say, well, it's really obvious. The two fish go together, and the cow goes off by itself on a separate branch of the tree. And then what Cletus proceeded to show people was... It really isn't that simple. So if you look at a lungfish, as the name suggests, a lungfish has lungs and it can breathe air. And the thing about the lungfish is that like the cow, it actually came out of the lineage of fishes that made their way onto land and eventually gave rise to the vertebrates. And so if you make a correct evolutionary tree, what you find is that lungfish and cows are more closely related to each other. They more recently share a common ancestor um, with each other than they do with salmon. And so the problem is, if you follow the rules that Willy Hennig and the Cletus set out, if you go back to that original fishy fish ancestor and you look at all its descendants, you see the lungfish, you see the salmon, but you also see the cow. It's in there. But if you don't want to have all these other things that you never would think of as fish be included as fish, then you're just going to have to abandon the fish altogether. And that's what happened. That's what the Cletus did. It's a clean, naked logic, and it, it's what scientists should be doing. It's what people should be doing who are doing the evolutionary ordering of life. But this victory for science has not necessarily played out well uh, for the rest of us, has it? No, I, I don't think it hasn't. And I think the problem is that the more and more different that scientific ordering and naming has become from Umwelt-based naming, from just how things appear to us, and your Umwelt tells you there is definitely such a thing as a fish. There is a group known as the fish. It's one of the universal groups that everyone recognizes. If we cede all of the authority to saying what's out there and how it's grouped and what it's named, which is basically a way of saying what it is to science, and we leave ourselves only with this very, very rigid evolutionary view of the living world, we lose all these other ways of seeing things. And we lose our own way, our own most natural way, the sort of Umwelt-based way of seeing things in the living world, which is really important to have because it's the way, it's the most profound and sort of one of the deepest ways that people connect with living things, I think. Carol Kasuk, you and the book is Naming Nature, The Clash Between Instinct and Science. Thank you very much. Thank you. From Naming Nature to Naming Our Landscape. The features of our American geography are the theme of our occasional series, Home Ground. Today, writer Donna Seaman defines a term dear to many lovers of the countryside, commons. Commons. A common, or commons, is land that belongs to an entire community. More specifically, it is open land held in common by the people of a town for shared pasturage or the gathering of firewood. As noted in a gazetteer of Illinois in 1834 by J.M. Peck, a common is a tract of land in which each owner of a village lot has a common but not an individual right. In some cases, this tract embraces several thousand acres. The common attached to Cuyahoga extends up the prairie opposite St. Louis. In her book, Red, Passion and Patience in the Desert, Terry Tempest Williams notes that most lands in the American West are public lands, a commons, if you will, held inside a national trust 
national forests, Bureau of Land Management lands, national parks, monuments, and refuges. I say these are the commons of a global village, preserved with common sense and commitment to the common good. Donna Seaman is a writer and editor based in Illinois. Her definition of commons comes from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney. Just ahead, could part of the prescription for saving Brazil's biodiversity be snake oil? Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. When negotiators gather in Copenhagen in December to consider a new global climate treaty, one major new element is what's called RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. The idea is to set a value on tropical forests so they're worth more left standing and capturing carbon than cut down. In the coming months, Living on Earth will present a special series about RED and the world's tropical forests. Today, Living on Earth's senior correspondent Bruce Gellerman has our first report from the heart of the Amazon as the river flows past Manaus, Brazil. The breeze feels great as the motorboat cuts across the Amazon. Even during Brazil's dry winter season, the air is hot and humid. Marco Lima, a fish biologist, joined our team as interpreter, driver, and naturalist as we set out on a month-long journey to explore the Amazon. Today, it's a short boat ride to see a unique Amazon phenomenon, the meeting of the waters. If you look at over here, we can see a battle of two waters, okay? Or the Amazon River trying to invade the Rio Negro and the Rio Negro backing off the Amazon waters. It's a battle of different densities and water temperatures that's fought out for miles. The black, acidic Rio Negro is warmer than the cool, tan Amazon. The waters eventually merge into the mightiest of rivers. For more than 4,000 miles from the melting glaciers of the Peruvian Andes, the Amazon meanders wide and deep. Vegetation flourishes in the intense tropical sun, making the river basin the richest ecosystem on the planet. Species, they simply uh, could survive here because of, number one, the incredible variety of plants. Very few people know that most of our fish in the Amazon, they are fruit eaters. I'm talking about even piranhas. There are sharks and pink dolphins, stingrays and electric eels, giant pararacu and tiny but deadly toothpick fish. 3,000 species of fish swim in the Amazon, twice as many as in the Atlantic Ocean. One-third of the world's species of plants and animals live in the river basin, wildlife found no place else on Earth. Here, one bush might contain more species of ants than the entire British Isles. 
to understand the biological diversity of the Amazon is extremely easy. Between the big tributaries of the Amazon, there's completely isolations. Most of our rivers, they have at least five miles wide. And a river with five miles wide is an enormous river. Birds like toucans, for example, they're not allowed to, to cross because they will fall in the, even before they get to the middle of the river. And then they say, Marco, they can swim. And I tell you, no, because predators, they're right there, you know, ready to eat whatever tries to cross the river. I mean, so many, uh, you know, so, so many reasons why these areas get naturally isolated. Even from the air, it's hard to grasp the vastness of the Amazon. The river basin stretches across nine South American countries. It spans an area the size of the continental United States. As the river flows east, 1,100 tributaries like veins feed into the Amazon artery, crisscrossing the landscape. In a single minute, the Amazon empties enough fresh water into the Atlantic to supply New York City for 60 years. The flow is four times that of the Congo River, ten times that of the Mississippi, and 60 times as much as the Nile. There are few paved roads. Rutted, red dirt tracks connect small towns and villages. Isolated indigenous tribes live deep in the forest. Here, you're on your own. So you're, you're very remote, and uh, it's not Kansas. I mean, it's not, you're not Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. It's a very rough region. John Carter pilots his four-seater Cessna Skywagon to his ranch in the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso. It means dense wood in Portuguese. Fifteen years ago, when Carter settled here from Texas, that was still an accurate description. But now, this is cattle and soy country. No, when we first moved here, when to the west is all forest, we'd sit here in the evenings, my wife and I, and there'd be waves and waves of parrots and macaws flying over. Today's maybe five, ten... Yeah, there's no more forest left. It tore it all down. Illegal loggers came first, cutting the forest for their valuable hardwoods. Ranchers then torched the remaining trees and brush, converting the land into pasture for cattle. Then farmers came and planted more profitable soybeans. As he surveys his land, John Carter says the destruction of the forest in this part of the Amazon basin has had a devastating effect on the weather and rainfall. It really is not normal. There used to be... It rains in, in like in July and August, it would cause the, the trees to flower. It don't happen anymore. When I moved here, they'd say, it's going to rain next week, you can't flower. I said, hey, how do you know it's going to rain? I said, what's the shoe of the sun's wrong? Well, how the hell do you know that? And sure enough, boom, three days straight, downpour. Now it's completely screwed up. Yeah, deforestation. Now that it's proven that half your precip comes from transpiration here. Transpiration. Trees suck up water through their roots and release it through their leaves as water vapor. It rises and forms clouds that hover above the forest. When trees are cut down, there's less transpiration, fewer clouds, and less rain. It's a cycle of destruction that feeds upon itself. Climate scientists call it dieback. Deforestation leads to drought, creating the conditions for vast wildfires, destroying the lungs of the planet. The Amazon basin, home to so much biological diversity, is drying and dying. And we really don't know what's being lost because the Amazon River Basin is not one but many ecosystems. And only a small fraction of what's living here has been identified. Biologist Marco Lima. Well, these places are amazing. Why not say that the transition forests are the big Pandora box of the Amazon? 
and opening Brazil's Amazon to development in agriculture in the 1960s led to unexpected consequences. Today, 75% of Brazil's carbon dioxide emissions come from deforestation. Here along a dusty road near the town of Santo Antonio, the dense virgin forest to the north gives way to savanna. It's a flat landscape with short trees, scrub brush, and shallow ponds. This is the biologically richest savanna on Earth. You'll find parrots, storks, eagles, and vultures, jaguar, giant sloths, anteaters, and snakes. Careful where you step, warns Marco. There are lots of snakes in this area, including the feared green anaconda. In the Cerrado, or in the savannic environments like this, we have a, a higher population of anacondas, even more than in the forest. One thing is true for uh, reptiles like anacondas, if they see you first, okay, they'll normally hide very well, unless you're really an interesting dish for them. How big can the anaconda get here? Well, 20 to 30 feet long. That's easy to be seen. Are they deadly? An anaconda with 20 feet can kill a man like us. Easy. Control, individually break every single bone we have, and swallow us. But more often, we swallow them. Anacondas, fat and lazy, rarely attack people, but the snake is a popular ingredient in traditional folk medicines. This is the, the, the fat from the water snake anaconda. At an open-air market in the city of Itaituba on the Trabajos River, a vendor sells a variety of potions made from Amazon products, including one with sucarillo, anaconda fat. He says it works wonders for coughs and wounds. It's a great healer, like after you, you have some deep cuts. Anaconda fat from, you mean from gordura, steak? Gordura da su, banha da sucuri. É, banha da sucuri. Yeah, anaconda fat. And how much do I take? What's the dosage? Como é que ele toca? Ele toma? Diga uma colher de uma colher de sopa duas vezes ao dia. One teaspoon, two times a day. I'll take it. Vou tomar. Pode. It's good. Take it. It's good. What do you got for male pattern baldness? Pra cá é que esse. O que é que você tem? Aqui não tem nada para isso. Don't laugh. It's estimated that a quarter of Western prescription drugs are derived from ingredients found in tropical forests. But only a small fraction of tropical plants and animals have ever been tested for medicinal purposes. The biologically rich Amazon could be worth tens of billions of dollars to drug companies looking for compounds like anaconda fat. But what's anaconda fat worth? According to Amazon forest scientist Nero Higuchi, it's difficult to say and expensive to figure out. I have made some estimation to transform this anaconda fat in some a product, a drug. You need at least almost $100 million in data collection. $100 million to spend yeah. anaconda fat? Yes, to, to transform this fat in drug. So this is something serious, no? This kind of study demand high technology, well-trained people, a lot of money. A decade ago, Novartis, the giant Swiss pharmaceutical company, offered Brazil $4 million plus 1% of revenue for 10 years for the right to collect, export, and study 30,000 samples from the Amazon forest. 
The agreement fell through at the last minute. Critics charged the company was trying to rob the nation of its biological wealth. Suspicion of biopiracy runs deep in Brazil, as deep as the Amazon forest itself. The Amazon economy was once based upon the rubber tree. Brazil provided the world's supply of natural latex, but rubber tree seeds were stolen, exported, and Brazil's market monopoly was lost. Today, it imports rubber. My dream was to come to the Amazon, to start the Amazonian forest, you know. For the past 30 years, Nero Huguchi has been conducting field experiments in this patch of the dense forest north of Manaus. Higuchi's goal? To learn how to save and sustainably develop the Amazon. Higuchi is a forest management scientist with INPA, the National Institute of Amazonian Research. He says some of the trees here are a thousand years old. Ooh. Ooh, now we're getting into the, into the jungle. Yeah, yeah through the jungle. What is that sound? It's a bird. A common name is Jungle Captain. Jungle Captain? Yeah. He's the captain. He's, uh, he's announced that we're here. 98% of this forest in Amazonas, the largest Brazilian state, is still standing. So far, illegal loggers, cattle ranchers, and soy farmers have stayed out. But Higuchi is worried. That's because, for all its potential biological value, right now a piece of this Amazon forest with trees standing on it has virtually no commercial value. In, in the Manaus area, you can buy one hectare of virgin forest by less than $50. 50 bucks? Yes. It's a bargain. A bargain. That comes to only about $20 an acre for lush, standing tropical forest. At that price, the forest is valuable only if it's cleared and used for agriculture. That's the big problem. We need to find a way to put value on a standing forest. Paolo Mancino is the director of the climate change program at EPOM, the Amazon Institute for Environmental Research. The deforestation rate in the Amazon is so big now because you cannot find alternative to use the forest in a sustainable way that have a competition enough to face other types of land use, like pasture, like soybeans, like other land use. So the people there is not seeing that's possible you have a good life, make money, keeping the standing forest. After three decades of studying the forest, scientist Nero Higuchi believes he has a solution. I believe that from a short-term run, if we combine forest management, wood product, and carbon business, we can keep this forest standing. To be sustainably developed, forests must be carefully managed. Higuchi calculates a ton of hardwood per acre can be harvested each year. This would provide income for commercial loggers, increase the forest's ability to capture and store more carbon, in turn making it more valuable in a potential carbon market. But protecting the forest's biological diversity? That's a different matter. If we remove this forest, we kill this biodiversity soil. And we don't know for what's the use of this diversity in the soil. Higuchi's experiments demonstrate that even largely deforested plots of Amazon will grow back in 30 or 40 years. It may look green and lush, but for a thousand years, it won't be the same forest. 
That's because when trees are cut down, the thin, nutrient-poor Amazon soil loses its ability to sustain biological diversity. Paolo Moncino of EPOM says no one is going to pay to protect soil. What's needed is an economic incentive beyond biological diversity to save the standing forest. Usually you are using a, a culture argument that's very important, a, a diversity, a biodiversity uh, argument to save forests. But I think that all these arguments are so important, but not important enough to save this large area. We are talking about the area equivalent of all Europe. Mancino says the only way to raise enough money to save tropical forests is red, the proposed U.N. mechanism designed to reduce emissions from deforestation and degradation. One-fifth of our annual worldwide emissions of climate-changing CO2 is released when tropical forests are destroyed. Under the red mechanism, developing countries with tropical forests would receive payments to keep their trees standing. Industrial nations would foot the bill, paying for their past and future carbon emissions. Forest scientist Nero Higuchi says red can work. It has to. This is our chance to do that, to protect the Amazonian forest. In the dense Amazon forest north of Manaus, researchers have built a 150-foot-tall metal observatory. Producer Bobby Bascom, biologist Marco Lima, and I huff and puff our way to the top, rewarded with a view of the forest canopy that seems to go on forever. And a surprise. Oh, my God, look at that. Wow. Oh, my God. A rainbow over the rainforest. 180 degrees rainbow. Amazing. Climate negotiators in Copenhagen will need a rainbow like this, one with pots of gold at both ends. Guestimates of the price tag for red range from 10 to $50 billion a year. No one knows really how much or how red will actually work, but time is short and the stakes are high. This is the first time I've ever seen both sides of a rainbow. A rainbow is both a biblical symbol of optimism and a divine promise that life on Earth will never be destroyed. This is the Amazon. The Amazon has been giving us a fantastic present every day. Amazing godly gifts every day, like this one here. But now a man-made disaster threatens the planet, and it is we who must find the will and act. And as the world considers what to do, the Amazon continues to flow relentlessly to the sea. For Living on Earth, in the Amazon forest, I'm Bruce Kellerman. Our story about carbon, biological diversity, and the Amazon was produced by Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom, with help from Marco Lima. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parak. Thanks today to West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. 
Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.